Welcome to the Australian Macadamia Society podcast. Listen in as we speak with macadamia growers, researchers and industry experts leading the way in best practice macadamia farming. For more information on anything you hear today, please head to our website, australianmacadamias.org industry. In this AMS podcast, AMS Industry Development Manager Leonie Quirton chats to Helen Wallace, Professor of Agricultural Ecology at Griffith University in Queensland. Professor Wallace has been a macadamia researcher for more than 20 years and is part of a team of researchers investigating pollination in a number of crops, including macadamia. The research is funded by the Hort Frontiers Pollination Fund and has shown that better pollination has the potential to improve yields and increase kernel recovery. Today we're chatting with Helen Wallace, Professor in Agricultural Ecology at Griffith University. Helen has been involved in macadamia research for many years and is part of a team currently investigating pollination in a number of crops, including macadamia. Welcome, Helen. Thank you, Leonie. Pleasure to talk to you today. So, Helen, who is doing this pollination research that you're involved in? We've got a team of researchers at Griffith Uni, uh, and some of them are Vivka Kamper, Dr. Vivka Kamper, um, Anushka De Silva, Joel Nichols. But the project is led and led by Professor Stephen Truman and funded by Hort Frontiers Pollination Fund. So, Helen, from your experience with many other crops that you're working in pollination, do you believe that macadamia are underpollinated? Yes, absolutely. Um, based on our recent research, I do think that they are underpollinated. So then getting in the basics, do we know what actually pollinates macadamia? Yes, we've known this for many, many years. Uh, we know that bees are good pollinators of macadamia, so both honeybees and stingless bees can act as pollinators. We know that there are lots of other insects that might also act as pollinators. And probably in the wild, it might be things like birds and bats. So for a grower, during full flowering, there seems to be a lot of pollen floating around in the orchard. Is wind assisting with some of this pollen movement? That's a really interesting question. Uh, and this is something that a lot of people tell me. Uh, one thing we know about macadamia is they're not adapted for wind pollination. So for example, they have nectar. So plants that have nectar are usually trying to attract animals to, to come and take their nectar. We also know that they have sticky pollen that forms in clumps and tends to fall to the ground. Now, it might be that they, there are a lot of um, pollen grains floating around, but the, the really typical thing that a wind-pollinated plant will have is a great big surface to catch the pollen. And we know that macadamia doesn't have this. They have a really, really, really tiny surface, smaller than a pinhead, to catch the pollen. So given all of those things, they're not adapted to catch the pollen. That doesn't mean that wind pollination doesn't happen occasionally. It might happen because at flowering time, as we all know, there's a lot of pollen floating around and it might accidentally land on the stigma. But if it does, it might be self-pollen and it might be dead pollen that's been floating around for a few days. So pollen has a certain viability and can be dead? That's right. So pollen, um, when it's freshly released, is usually the, the best pollen, so for the first probably eight to ten hours after it's freshly released. Now we don't really know in macadamia, but in other plants pollen can maybe only last a few hours. In some plants it might last a few days. In macadamia we don't really know, but the good chance if it's been floating around in the atmosphere for three, four, five days, it might not no longer be viable. So it can't grow and it can't fertilize the, the flower. 
So can you explain for us the difference between what you mentioned self-pollen and cross-pollen? Okay, um, again, a lot of growers have asked me this. They've, they've said, is, is cross-pollen from a different tree or from a different flower? Cross-pollen is any pollen from a different variety and self-pollen is any pollen from the same variety. So for example, if you get pollen from 344 and you go and get pollen from 344 in California or in Hawaii or in South Africa, that is still self-pollen. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It's all about the genetics of that pollen. If that pollen is the same as the pot tree that you're putting it on, same variety, that is self-pollen. And cross-pollen is any pollen from a different variety. So from the research, Helen, what do we understand about macadamia's need for this cross-pollination? Okay, we've, we've got a lot of new research on that, but um, I probably need to go back to basics and explain a little bit about inbreeding. So macadamias are plants and they don't like inbreeding, just the same as animals. We all know what happens when you inbreed animals or you inbreed humans. We know that that means that the offspring are likely to be deformed, or they're likely to be weak and small and have all kinds of problems that they may not survive. It's exactly the same for plants. So macadamias in the rainforest have evolved to stop inbreeding and they've got all these mechanisms that they have that stop them from breeding with themselves. So the, the really funny thing about a macadamia, um, in animals we have male and females and they're separate. In macadamia, the male and female bits are right next to each other. So they're gonna accidentally self-pollinate all the time. And that's a really bad thing if you're a macadamia because it means you're gonna have deformed, small and weak offspring. So over millions and millions of years, macadamias have evolved to stop that from happening, like many, many tree crops. And the way that they do that is they chemically recognize pollen that's self-pollen and they stop it from growing down. So they don't want to waste any of their effort making a nut that's going to be small and weak and un unlikely to survive. So that's the first problem. They've got a chemical system that stops the self-pollen from growing. If the self-pollen does make it, which it sometimes will, you've got an embryo that's going to be small and weak and not so strong as those from cross-pollination. So that's why uh, macadamias need cross-pollination. They've evolved to prevent self-pollination and they've evolved to, to try to make sure that they're having as healthy offspring as they possibly can. So cross-pollination is important then for nutset. What do we know about the longevity through to the final crop though? Because many growers do have those mono varietal blocks okay so and that's a really good question and that's something we've been wondering about for many many years but we've been able to resolve that with recent research using paternity testing um, the crop at harvest so when you say paternity testing can you give us an explanation okay so the crop is that the embryo or the baby if you like the nut the kernel that's the baby we want to find out who the daddy is so same with people same with animals uh, we want to find out who where did the pollen come from that made that embryo and it's exactly the same as animals if you have um, a particular father and particular mother you can if you have a mother and you have a, a, a range of different fathers you can figure out who the father was and so we've got really good genetic techniques that that can figure this out now so there was some early work in the, the late 90s that showed that A16 was around about 90% cross-pollinated, even in the middle of a really large block, which was really surprising. And this work showed that the yield dropped off as you moved away from the other variety. And so now that we've got these great big new 
fantastic paternity testing techniques, um, we were able to, to go back and revisit some of those large blocks and find out who the daddy was for all of the nuts. So the techniques that we used were mass array and genotype by sequencing. And we looked at what was happening in great big blocks of 816 and Dado. Helen, can you explain the mass array and genotype by sequencing briefly for those of us lay people? Okay, so in the old days, we had to um, we had really we had to do tests on the nuts where we um, got a whole lot of markers and we put it all together to figure out who the daddy was. These days, we can do um, we can get great big long sequences of DNA from from the nuts, and then we can try to match that to the parents. It's because we've got a lot more data than we used to have. It's it's much easier to do this once we've got. Uh, um, a library where we can tell, okay, this is what 344 looks like, this is what 816 looks like, this is what Dado looks like. We can then go back and match those sequences to the nuts to find out who the likely father is. So can you tell us about some of more of the recent work that you've done on some of those big uh, monovarietal blocks? Yeah, so we went into some blocks and I think there were about 48 rows of um, Dado and 48 rows of 816. And we were thinking, well, okay, we'd expect a lot of cross-pollination on the edges of those blocks where, they're, where the dado's next to the 816. But we thought we'd find a lot of self-nuts right in the middle of those blocks. So we went into row 23, right in the middle of the block, as far away from the other variety as we could. And we paternity tested all the nuts in there, along with paternity testing all the nuts on the edge. And we thought we'd find a lot of crosses at the edge and then maybe mostly selfs in the middle. Much to our surprise, we found 90% of the nuts were cross-pollinated even in the middle of the blocks. And it didn't drop off as we moved away from the cross-pollen. So right in the, in the middle of those great big pure blocks, there were hardly any selfs at all. They were all cross-pollinated. And that was a big surprise to us. So if such a high percentage of nuts are cross-pollinated, Helen, does that mean that Obviously, we have adequate pollination and we don't need to manage it more intently. That's one explanation. But there's another explanation, and this is a really important one for growers to think about because it might impact on their yield. Another explanation is maybe they've set lots of crosses, but they can't hold their selves, even under any circumstances. So if there's some really strong barrier to macadamias hanging onto their selves and turning them into nuts, you might find lots of crosses and you might never find selves in, even in the middle of a big block. But if it's, this is true, we might find that the yields in those big blocks is lower than the yields on the edge of the block because those trees in the middle of that big block are missing out on lots and lots and lots of crop because they just don't get enough cross pollen in, in there. So in the middle of the big block, we thought we might get one or two tons per hectare of crosses, but on the edges where there's more bees or there's more cross pollen, you might get four tons per hectare of crosses. And that would be another way of looking at it. So either they're really well pollinated or you're missing out on a lot of crop in the middle of that block where you haven't got enough cross pollen. So Helen, do we know more accurately how much yield is potentially lost from this poor pollination? We do now, and it's something that I've been talking about with other researchers for 30 years, and we finally got the chance to do the big experiment that we've been dreaming of for a very long time. So what we did, we got whole trees of Dado and 816 in those big blocks that I was talking about, and we pollinated as many racemes as we possibly could to see how much more yield we could get if we had really good pollination. 
So we want to find out what's the carrying capacity of the trees. If you throw all the pollen in the world that you've got at it, what's the maximum yield that we can get from those trees? And to find out if we could lift the yield from what it was doing at the moment. Now this is a crazy experiment because um, it's, we had 10 trees crossed and 10 trees as controls in each row that we did it. So we did one row of dado next to the 816 and we did one row of dado in the middle of the block and the same for 816. We did one row of 816 uh, next to the dado and one row of 816 in the middle of the big block. Now we have to do replicates and controls because we have to do a proper experiment. So we had about 10 trees crossed and 10 trees control in each of the rows and we hand pollinated every resin we could on those trees where we cross pollinated. It took a lot of people, a lot of hours. We had a team of 10 people working and working like crazy um, all the time in the orchard. And in the end, we managed to hand pollinate about 40,000 racemes all up to do this big experiment. So that was exciting for me because it's something that we never knew. What is the carrying capacity of the trees? How much can we get out of these trees if they've got all the pollen in the world thrown at them? So for 816, we lifted nut and shell yield from 1.3 to 2.5 tonnes per hectare in the middle of the block, so that's a massive increase. For Dado, in the middle of the block, we lifted it from 2.8 to 3.9 tonnes per hectare. So these are, these are very big increases in yield. And even on the edge of the, the blocks, right next to the other variety, where you think pollination was really good, we still managed to lift nut and shell yield by about 30%. So for 816, it went from 2.1 to 2.7 tonnes. And for Dado, it went from 3.1 to 4 tonnes per hectare. So more or less, by throwing all the pollen in the world that we could, all the cross pollen in the world we could at these trees, we all managed to lift the yield by about a tonne per hectare. So we think that that's, that's, what, that's how much nuts are under, the macadamias are under-pollinated. So Helen, how then do you explain that many growers have a big block of the same variety and still get good nut set? Yeah, and that's, that's a really good question that we wondered ourselves. And we've got three possible reasons for this. So it might be that the pollen's coming from a long way. And when we did our paternity testing, we actually found that some pollen was coming from more than one kilometre away. So pollen can be carried by bees a very long way. Another reason for why we might get set in these big pure blocks is that the block may not be just one cultivar. So every grower that you speak to knows about ring-ins. There's always some varieties that aren't what they were supposed to be or um, weren't, that don't actually look right. And that might be because there's been a rootstock that's grown up. Um, it might be because varieties somehow got mixed up with other varieties or it might be trees that get replaced after storm damage. And the result, this might happen in the nursery where um, one variety gets accidentally swapped with another one, um, or it might happen at planting, and we don't really know. But we do know it's really common to have ring-ins in an orchard. And everyone says they've got a pure block, but you, every grower that I know can go down and say, well, actually, that's not actually a 344, that's something else, or that's not this, that's actually something else. And there are the ring-ins that you can see, but there are also the ring-ins that you can't see. So some varieties that are really hard to tell apart. So the end result is that instead of having a pure block, you've got a mostly pure block with a few trees here and there that are not that same variety, that are a different variety. The really good thing about that is that this might be why we're getting some set in those really big pure blocks. Okay, so that's our second reason. That was a very long explanation. There's a possible third reason, and there's also some evidence for this. There may be some varieties that are self-fertile. So 
there's some really good evidence from Kathy Knox's group at Southern Cross University that 741 can set selves. But then the next question we have about those varieties that can set self is how does that affect kernel recovery? The handful of selfs that we got from 816 had a kernel recovery of about 30% compared with 44% for the crosses. And it goes back to that thing that I was saying before about inbred things are weak and small and um, not very strong. So we don't really know if nuts that are selfs are actually going to be smaller than, than other ones. So Helen, you mentioned 7 for 1 um, being a possible self-fertile variety. Are there any other varieties that we have that could be self-fertile? That's exactly what we want to know and we're in the middle of doing paternity testing of about 20 varieties to find out which ones are self-fertile. Um, so we want to find out for these varieties which ones are self-fertile. Now just because they're self-fertile doesn't mean that the whole crop will come from selfs. It might be that they're self-fertile but only 30% of the crop comes from selfs. But we also want to know which pollen parents make big nuts and which pollen parents make small nuts. So again, back to that thing about inbreeding, um, there might be some, we know that if you've got, say, think about a dog, for example. You think about a dog, a big dog crossed with a small dog, we know that the puppies are going to be bigger. We think that the same thing's going to happen with the nuts. We know that different cross-pollen parents might be able to produce bigger nuts or smaller nuts. But we also, most importantly for growers, we want to know how does pollen parent affect kernel recovery. As I just mentioned before, we know that selfs tend to be smaller and have lower kernel recovery. But we want to find out for all these varieties, what's the effect of pollen parent on kernel recovery? So Helen, your research has clearly shown a potential for a yield increase and also a kernel recovery increase from better pollination what about other quality attributes linked to cross-pollination? We've got some uh, work ongoing on that. Uh, I can't tell you the answers to that yet. We're, we're still working through the data, but that might be um, sometime next year. And Helen, do you believe that improved pollination, it obviously potentially increases yield and quality in orchards in all settings or just in those settings that are under-pollinated? That's a really inter interesting question. Uh, the fact that we found that trees in the middle of large blocks are underpollinated by about 1.1 to 1.2 tonnes per hectare um, was really surprising to us. But we're also finding that the trees right next to another variety still were underpollinated by about 0.7 to 0.9 tonnes per hectare. Now we haven't looked at this on very many orchards, so we don't really know what's going on out there in the industry as a whole. But it probably indicates to us that underpollination might be much more widespread than we thought. So hard to know, um, I, but one of the things that growers can do, they can look for if there's clumps of pollen on their flowers in the early afternoon, that would mean there's been no bees there. If they've got really low initial nut set at about three weeks after flowering, that might mean that they've got a pollination problem. If they find that their yield declines as they move away from another cultivar, that might mean that they've got a pollination problem, but we really don't know. And Helen, talking more about this average grower, what does this mean for them in terms of orchard design potentially or management of orchards into the future? Um, I think for any grower that's putting in new orchards, they should seriously think about interplanting cultivars. Um, if, they've, if, if it's a grower with an established orchard, they might think about replacing storm damaged trees with another cultivar or about ways to get the, the pollen uh, different varieties close together. It's really important to make the job as easy as possible for the honeybees by putting the cultivars as close together and hopefully that will help 
to get the cross pollen in. The other really important thing is to bring the honeybees in and to spread them around the orchard as much as possible. And, and try to avoid use of using any pesticides during flowering and make sure that they're not going to hurt the bees if they're going onto the crop. So Helen, in, in conclusion, what is next in our understanding about pollination in macadamia? Um, we could probably learn a, a lot from almonds. So in almonds they have known self-sterile self and self-fertile self varieties and they really strongly interplant the varieties. So they have vari one variety planted next to another variety, alternate rows, variety one, variety two, variety one, variety two. And they really, really actively manage their bees, so much so that there are pollination contracts, there are um, projects on trying to find ways to make sure the bees have proper nutrition when they go onto the farm. and, and everything they can do to try to get those pollinators in there. So I, I think that there's, there's the sorts of things that the macadamia industry should think about um, as ways to manage this and, and solve some of these, these issues. Well, thank you, Helen. That was really interesting and certainly informative. Thank you for your time today. And we look forward to catching up when uh, you have even more updates on the research that you're doing. For our listeners, if you want more information about pollination in macadamia, Helen and her team have authored several Macadamia Bulletin articles which are available on the AMS website and there's also more information on the Hort Frontiers Pollination Fund website. Lastly, we've uh, published a new AMS fact sheet on pollination and that also is available on the AMS website. Thank you for your time today, Helen. We appreciate it. Thanks very much, Leonie. Thanks everyone for listening today. You've been listening to the Australian Macadamia Society podcast. For more information on anything you heard today, please head to our website, australiamacadamias.org/industry, or phone the AMS on 1800 262 426.